just because the platforms have been doing this for years doesn't mean they should have. It's because legislation couldn't catch up to to everything that was happening below the line. We need tech to actually stand up and say, we're not going to do that anymore. Welcome to How AI Happens, a podcast where experts explain their work at the cutting edge of artificial intelligence. You'll hear from AI researchers, data scientists, and machine learning engineers as they get technical about the most exciting developments in their field and the challenges they're facing along the way. I'm your host, Rob Stevenson, and we're about to learn how AI happens. Here with me today on How AI Happens is the venture partner over at Matter Ventures, Hesse Jones. Hesse, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you, Rob, for having me here. You have such an interesting background. Before we get too deep in the weeds here, would you mind sharing a little bit about your background, how you kind of wound up in your current role at Matter? Yeah. So my background, I I started off as a marketer. So I graduated in marketing at business school and I dove quickly into data marketing, database marketing. And so early on, everything that I learned from a marketing standpoint had to be from an analytics and measurement capability. Everything that we did was performance-based. And so that was really where I started. And I worked at um, ad agencies, including Ogilvy, Rap Collins Worldwide, Aegis Media. And in those roles, I actually evolved after, I, I guess, Y2K, 1999, I, I delved more into the digital space. And uh, I realized that there's so much more that we could do here. I went into banking shortly after, partly because the hours were crazy when it comes to agency. But what I realized is that once you got into digital, it didn't matter whether or not you worked at a bank or an ad agency, you'd be working the same kind of hours because it was such a disruptive medium. And so I worked in banking for a while trying to understand how we could actually drive offline to online. And that meant direct mail to actual direct digital, which was really now, I guess people call them banner ads or online advertising or Google AdWords or whatever. So that was that was the beginning of, of me getting into digital. I soon realized that banking, it took too long it almost took too long to do many things. And even though they're trying to be disruptive, there was still a chain of command and there was still a lot of red tape and, and I guess a lot of proving out to do before you could actually execute or put something into production. So I left there to go to Yahoo and Yahoo was the, the place that really changed the game for me. It introduced me to a different type of uh, work style, which everybody talks about, you know, uh, fail fast, being able to, to change things on the fly and failing was was great because we realized we could rectify things just as fast as we created failure in the systems. But it also introduced me to this idea of community. And I never really understood it before I went to, to Yahoo. And that's where I launched Yahoo Answers here in Canada and really understood the dynamics of how people who didn't know each other from all across the world could actually communicate 
get to know each other, engage with each other. And for me, it, it introduced a new type of business model that today now is like social media. Back then, it was social media from an organic standpoint, and it quickly evolved into a social media from, from very much a profitable business model standpoint. And so I did that for a while. And then so I basically have been in startup for the last 10 years, uh, from big data analytics, to things like profiling, to customer journey analytics. And then in the last four, four to five years, I've really concentrated on AI ethics and privacy. A lot of it because I realized that there are a lot of problems that that we created even just as advertisers that 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 compounded the problems that we see today so i wanted to be part of the the solution not the problem and venture capital happened for me in the last couple of years as well when covid hit because we realized the issues that were happening with respect to to diversity in the workplace venture capital is not immune to the diversity problems that we see today and I wanted to to make sure that you know the individuals and groups that have not had access to investment actually had that opportunity as well and so so coming in from the startup space I wanted to to specifically support those those groups women BIPOC indigenous as well as uh, the neurodiverse populations and new immigrants of the country to be able to have equal access to programs but also to investment it's a fantastic mission i definitely want to get more into the way you do business at matter firstly though could you share a little bit more about what inspired you to focus on ai ethics you mentioned that you were seeing some some problems even in the way the ads were deployed was there like a a, a rubicon moment there or or what was it for you that you're like okay there this is fraught in some areas i need to be i need to be part of the the team being thoughtful about this so i told told you i was in uh, advertising for many years but also being part of the ad platform uh, Yahoo, what, that was our bread and butter, was advertising. And so my boss was, I think back in 2005, he was the, the guru of behavioral marketing. So just by virtue of being able to see where people were going on our website at Yahoo, we could, we could surmise what their interests were. I think what we also had the ability to do, which I think kind of crossed the line was to be able to machine read emails. And so your Yahoo email could potentially have used the words travel or trip between you and your girlfriend. We could pop an ad <laughs> that showed, oh, hey, how about this uh, vacation spot for you at the time that you've actually sent that email? And so that's when when I start to see things like that, I start to question whether or not that was actually crossing the line. And I think it wasn't until probably years later that I, I moved away from advertising, but started doing a lot more AI stuff that even the startups I was working with doing customer journey analytics, uh, doing profiling, where we could we could essentially go and look at people's profiles on social media and and understand who they were, what they needed, like what they're like, what their moods were like. We, we started being able to, to look at things like sentiment and to be able to discern so many more things about them. And I, I thought, wow, what a great idea 
if you can marry transaction with profile and transaction was what the business had, they would know, you know, how often you came to the bank, your services, how, what you spent and all that stuff. But what if they, we wanted them to know more about you as an individual, what you liked, what the bad things that you're saying on social media, things you didn't like, and marry those two things so that we can target you better. And as much as this was a business opportunity that I thought was amazing, it wasn't until years later that I realized we shouldn't be doing that. We, we, we should actually separate who you are as an individual to who you are as a, you know, a business customer. Because from my perspective, as a customer, businesses should not have access to that type of information if you don't want them to. Yeah. So that that's where I wanted to go next is, is was the the problem for you privacy? Or was it that this was happening without people's input that they had kind of accepted terms and conditions without really considering what it meant? Because what you're describing, the you know turning transaction into a profile, that is like the, this business, this dream of businesses to be able to more accurately predict what customers needed to meet them with a product at the moment they wanted it, right? But that just ignores the consumer's role in it. Was it merely privacy or, or what was the thrift of the problem that made you spooked by it? Well, there are there are a couple things because I, I also remember, I think it was, gosh, 2011, 2012, when Snowden came out and he, he talked about the government's use of information. And usually, let's say somebody is doing something wrong, you need a warrant to, to be able to go deeper and determine whether or not that is in fact true. Well, the government wasn't doing that. They're basically to find, let's say, the one or two percent that were doing potentially bad things. They needed to look at the 98% who probably weren't doing anything. So they had access to information from everybody and 98% of them could have been innocent. And so to me, it, it wasn't necessarily a privacy thing because I didn't really understand the data privacy side until much later. What I thought was, is that this is not, this just doesn't seem right. And I had discussions, especially with, with friends back when I was actually on Facebook, which I deleted like five or six years ago. But when when the, the stuff about Snowden came out, people started blanketing marketers and advertise, advertising agencies the same way as the government. And they said, we never asked to be targeted. We never asked to have this done to us. We never asked that you're, you do this to our data. One executive said this, uh, she was a brand executive, and she said, you know, you want us to give you the most relevant information so you could purchase and make things easier for you so you don't have to actually Google for the best deals or whatever. You could have the best information come to you so you don't have to do that. And yet you're starting to cry foul when it comes to, to all this stuff. So a friend of mine, Julie Pippert, had said, you know, I don't have anything to hide and that's not the point. You don't have the right to use my information because that's my choice. And then when it came down to it, it came down to the fact that that you know my private information is is my right. And so when we talk about personal property, people saw it very much as personal property. This is stuff that lives in my home or on my person and I don't allow anybody in the door unless they have permission, right? It's the same thing as a warrant. You can't come into my home unless you have a warrant. And so 
people started seeing personal information the same way. I'm not saying the millennials or people that were younger that, that actually grew up with the internet thought they were lost causes. And they said, you know what? I've already given myself out there. I use Instagram. I use Snapchat. I use all these social media places. Like I can't do anything about it. I can't take it back. But that's not necessarily true. And I think people have to realize that they do have a choice and that just because the the platforms have been doing this for years doesn't mean they should have. It's because legislation couldn't catch up to to everything that was happening below the line. And I think that that is a big part of it. We, we do have lagging legislation. We need tech to actually stand up and say, we're not going to do that anymore. What was the beginning of your work then once you sort of realized that this was a problem? Yeah. So I used to work for a company called Cerebri. And Cerebri, I think, is a company that still exists here in Toronto. But they were doing customer journey analytics. And, and so the idea was to be able to ingest a lot of information so that we could discern what a customer's path to purchase was. And everybody knows about the buying funnel, correct? So, but we did it for the buyer journey for both cars as well as banking. And so the one thing that that we also started to see was that the information that we were getting we started to question whether or not we should get that information. Because if you can imagine the amount of data that a bank has or that a car company has on customer information, all their transactions, all the different types of data sets, it's massive. But one thing that I realized is that there's a lot of information in there that didn't necessarily have positive consent attached to it. Like, do customers know that, for example, this bank is using this data to specifically analyze. And like you alluded to earlier, Rob, when people sign or, or tick that box on privacy and just to get to the experience, they have no idea what they're signing their, their life away for. And what these terms and conditions have done is basically created this blanket effect that allowed customers to just you know, sign their life away and not read stuff that's just so complicated and legalese. When we were doing some analysis at Beacon Trust Network, because we were developing an application for data privacy impact assessments, we realized that the reading level on many of these terms and conditions was more suitable for, let's say, a 30 or 40-year-old. It wasn't simple enough. And if anybody has read any kind of legal terms and conditions, they try to bury as much as they can in complicated language. And Google, Microsoft, all the big guys that that have terms and conditions that are like 10, 15 pages long, that's the the other way to do it. Let's just pummel you with so much information that you can't read it. So that's that's another way to reduce their accountability to citizens. So the the one thing I realized is that again we're we're getting information that we shouldn't have, but also during that time I would have discussions with two people. I was I was doing an AI for good conference and I met two people, one from Children's Hospital here in Canada. She was an AI researcher that was actually doing a lot of research to determine the causes for, for kids' diseases like cancer, etc. So she, she was using AI to figure that out. On the other side, I met with an engineer 
who worked at Uber. And we had some interesting discussions about accountability. And I think this this is what got me started down this path because there was no understanding or even accountability at their level to say, I just write the code. Like I don't have to solve the trolley problem, right? If 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 the, the car decides that, you know, the probability of killing two people versus one person, they take the path of least resistance, correct? And I said, but that that is not that's very much a human problem, not a not a, a computer problem. And and the idea of leaving ethics to machine didn't make sense. Or even if that could happen because people are wired very much differently than machines. And the problem that we have is that we inject our own biases into these models. And so a machine doesn't or can't necessarily make the right decision based on based on circumstances. It's really grandfathered from its maker. And so that's when I started thinking there has to be more to this. And like a, a researcher who says, I want to be able to help cure cancer in kids. But hey, if I, I only have data sets from children in, let's say, Texas, but I want something more representative. So it will be it will be able to cure cancer, this type of cancer from all over the world. Well, geographies have different impacts on a specific disease, right? The the food, the conditions have, are, are very different from country to country. So you have to take all those things into consideration, which means that your data set has to be more representative of the different geographies, the different cultures that you're trying to solve this problem for. And, and so, so we started running into those issues, the data set problem. The who makes who the model problem, you know, the black box. And then the more I started digging into it, I just realized, you know, AI is just not ready. It's just not ready. Yeah, particularly with the data being used and collected. This is a common question that comes up. When do you know that your model is ready to put into production? Like it's had enough training data. And in a world where it's going to be deployed for different populations, different kinds of people, there's probably never enough, right? It's always going to be replete with some bias. I spoke with Roman Yampolsky a couple episodes ago, and he made the point that you can't even get human beings to agree on what is ethical. So how are you going to codify it into, into a machine? I thought that summed it up nicely. This is, this kind of bridges to another point I wanted to speak about, this intersection of personal privacy, data usage, and also just the the implicit biases at play here. Where does this lead us to the possibility for synthetic data? Is synthetic data a panacea for a lack of diverse data or a, a bias-free data? I say if you had asked me this question probably 10 months ago, I, I would have said yes. I said for sure. If there's the ability to actually use information that you can you know, cut into thousands and thousands of pieces, make it representative in a way that um, mitigates harms to individuals, I'd say for sure. But the problem you know, I see with synthetic data, like the more I, I think about it, is, is the rise of deep fakes. I've seen companies actually use methods like uh, GANs to be able to fool computers, right, into into understanding what's fake and what's real for the protection of privacy. See, I believe you've uploaded, let's say, 10 pictures of yourself to the internet. And all and Google has been really 
accurate at identifying who is Rob on Instagram and who is Rob on, on Facebook, et cetera, and, and every other channel that where you've uploaded your picture. So there are companies out there. There's one company in particular that was able to say, well, how about we upload your picture to the internet, but we apply GANs, which is an adversarial uh, uh, algorithm, to be able to create a little bit of noise enough on the image that when a computer reads it, it will say, that's not Rob. But to a human eye, that's Rob for sure, right? And so from a privacy perspective, you can have... 15 different pictures of yourself on the internet and none of the, and a computer would say, no, that's not him. So that's good from that perspective. But then once it, once you start to amplify the use of, of this information. So what if we took it to the next level and we'd say, well, that's not Rob, but let's, let's be, be able to, to use it in a way that, you know, the more that you use the technology, we can now fake your voice. Or, or your image to a point that we don't know now what's real or not real. And I think that's the problem that I see with synthetic data, especially today when there is the rise of like all this controversy on social media. You know, people could say this is actually happening, but you know, the, the amount of fact checking that went on in the previous presidency because he lied so many times now it could even be amplified a lot more because all you need to do is switch out somebody's voice with another voice using synthetic data to be able to to be able to make that person seem to say the things that you want him to say without it being real and to an individual who can't discern what's real you know it's going to be very difficult so that's the issue that i have when you when you try to replace one technology for another, it creates a whole slew of other problems. Yeah. And even thinking about how, how poor fake information was like in, in recently from places like Facebook and the things people will believe because they'll read a headline and like the, the, the auto generated three lines of text below the photo and be like, Oh, this is the truth. And it's like, if you read the thing and then did 20 seconds of Googling, you'd probably be like, I don't know about this, but people won't even go that far. So what happens when fakes are even better, right? This problem was just getting worse. Surely it doesn't strike me that like facial recognition technology is even a solution either, because how is that going to work in a, in a sufficiently advanced deep fake world, right? Like it feels like there's kind of an arms race against, biometrics or proving you are who, who you say you are what, what can we do about this is 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 pandora already like peeking her nose out of the box here like is this going to happen no matter what we do what's the solution i don't think so i don't think facial recognition is is going to be a solution for for even verifying that you are who you are there's just too much there's just too much out there like that like i don't know if you heard the most recent thing you know clearview ai you know they're known for perpetrating like really awful things. They, they, they scrape data of millions of people all around the world and then they sell it to law enforcement. Well, they've gone one step further and they, they scrape the data of, of everyone, but what they said to Ukraine is specifically is for all the, let's say, Russian soldiers that were killed during this this war, you will make sure that we can identify the fallen 
through facial recognition so that you could send that back to the families to make sure that they know. And that's really crass because now it sets up a precedent. And how do you know whether or not it's real, right? And the one thing about about facial recognition as well is that in order to have some level of accuracy, you need biometrics. And so biometrics on a face is usually, I, I think they say the ear to some extent, but it's really the iris, right? So what are you going to do to a fallen soldier? Open their eyes, take that picture, and then match it against your database and say, yeah, that's him. I mean, there's so many awful things attached to that, that to me, it like the future is really about data that's not shared. Or if it's shared, it's shared in a way that that increases accountability. And and so there are things that are coming up that I think are amazing technologies. They're still very much edge case, but through verifiable credentials and uh, the self-sovereign identity communities, they're starting to gain a lot of traction because the way they're they talk about sharing data. It's really about it's you know the relationship between like a, a a Visa, Mastercard, and a bank, and then the individual. It's the same thing with a verifiable credential. Use a, a verifiable credential that come let's say between your DMV, which is the, the issuer, and it's about me, the holder. And then the verifier, which is let's say the guy at the border who's saying you are who you are. And all they get on their end is a check mark that says, yeah, that's HESI. They don't actually physically receive any data. They literally get a check mark from the verifier. And so I think the future is really about making sure that the data stays where it sits with the creators of the data, the individual who can potentially hold it in their wallet, but be able to carry it around with them so that so that that is the that is the only place of truth for for the real information that's where we have to get to because we don't want to rely on potential let's say fake data brokers that that will sell information that may be untrue about individuals or be able to use very 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 personal information like for example Roe v Wade right now is a big deal and the amount of information that's being shared to law enforcement about databases about women who have the potential to have an abortion in the coming months or my daughter told me about this application called flow which allows individuals to manage their menstrual cycle and the ability for the data from that to determine, you know, a woman's reproductive cycle or health, reproductive health, and to share that with organizations is now heightened. You know, how much more vulnerable will women be because of the applications that they use? It opens up avenues that that people don't realize that make them much more vulnerable to the system. And it's not fair. You can take that to it's the, the thought police extreme, certainly. I don't think that's too much of an inductive leap, but also just the what's going to happen in the meantime, even before that, is you search a term like abortion and then you're going to be inundated with whoever has paid against that, right? And then like, there's a war going on for your mind in that way, right? And like just because you, you, are, you are now going to 
be saturated with media and with literature and with ads and with imagery based on that, based on people who have incentives that are not your own, right? That that to me is, you know, it's 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 as big of a problem, right? Like that sort of mass influence going on by the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. I think that that'll go away eventually, uh, not right away, but there have been there have been fights at least at in in Europe against what the IAB was doing and. And with advertisers being able to, to I guess, micro-target based on who you are as an individual, what your political affiliation is, whether or not you have specific diseases, they can get to that point. And the IAB, so it was ruled in Europe that 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 they can't do that anymore. They get, because there is right right now obviously no positive consent that they've gotten from the consumer. And also it's harmful. It's harmful because much of the campaigns that are there that are being run against that are very much political. Hesse, I could keep talking about this with you all day. I, I do want to speak about Matter Ventures a little bit. I feel like we haven't got to the, the nitty gritty here, but I'd love to hear a little bit about the firm and in particularly the way you AI technologies and under what circumstances you would choose to invest in an AI technology. So Matter Ventures, we're an emerging fund. Uh, we we operate out of Toronto, but we invest both in Canada and the U.S. predominantly. So we're a late C to Series A fund, and we invest in underestimated founders. And like I said earlier, we want to invest in, in people that have game-changing technologies, but they've never had previously never had access. So it's women it's black indigenous people of color it's the neuro neurodiverse community as well and the way we see technology we're we're essentially technology agnostic but for the most part what i've tried to inject is on top of being able to invest in these amazing founders and game changing technologies and and the ability to to actually do something meaningful for the world is also making sure that we take them to account and that we invest in technologies that have the intention to do good. But as we know, the the road to hell is paved with many, many good intentions. So how do we make them accountable in that journey? And we have to employ technologies as well as, as tools that will scrutinize not only their processes, but their technology to determine whether or not their models are flawed, whether or not, you know, they're collecting data that's not, that they shouldn't be collecting. There, it's, it's going to be supplanted with a lot of the laws that are already happening today that will start to, to make startups and technologies much more accountable for the models that they create, as well as the, the data that they collect and manage. So we want to be able to do that in tandem with what's already occurring, but also support like new technologies in cybersecurity and privacy tech that are that are trying to do good as well. What are some examples of uh, organizations or resources that you can deploy to, to measure your models and make sure that it's being built in a thoughtful way? Well, I would say the Re- Responsible AI is a nonprofit organization. They're already doing this. They, they've actually put together, I would say, like an open source community across various industries to develop standards. And the standards go through to a certification course. 
that that means that like eventually it'll be like ISO 1000 where you you actually put your company through this certification course and then at the end of it if you get certified then then that provides a check mark into your accountability there are DPIAs let's say like uh, Beacon Trust Network uh, so these are data privacy impact assessments that will actually go through your technology stack understand what applications you you use what how that information is being used and how how much of it is being disclosed and what risks are there to you as an organization? So those are technologies right now that are startups that are, are starting to take hold. And the more of these that actually get, get into the ecosystem as, as standards and standard technologies, the better we are. From an AI perspective, I think, and privacy, there are technologies and methods out there that de-identify, let's say, personal information before they actually go into the model. So the, the model doesn't have a chance of memorizing PII data or leaking it. And so lots of those are already happening. And many working groups are, av- are available right now to, to try to create machine learning models that, that allow us to obfuscate, anonymize, or pseudonymize uh, PII information in existing databases so that when they take that data and they use it for something else, that information is already, that personal information is already extracted somehow. Those are fantastic resources. I will make sure to put some links in the show notes so our friends out there in podcast land can investigate on their own. Hesse, this has been a magnificent conversation. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your experience with me. I've loved learning from you today. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. How AI Happens is brought to you by Sama. Sama provides accurate data for ambitious AI, specializing in image, video, and sensor data annotation and validation for machine learning algorithms in industries such as transportation, retail, e-commerce, media, medtech, robotics, and agriculture. For more information, head to Sama.com.